It's Friday, January 27th, 2023. I'm Jackson Bird. Today, some wildly optimistic projects being funded by NASA, including more sustainable commercial aircrafts and self-growing bricks on Mars. Plus, a new Shakespearean theater company whose performances all take place inside of one of the world's most popular video games. Here's some cool stuff for your ride home. It's a new year with hot and fresh new budget approvals, so I thought it was time to check in on some of the more interesting projects NASA has coming down the pipeline. Or more specifically, research projects which have recently been granted money via NASA's Innovative Advanced Concepts Program, or NIAC. NIAC is where some of the weirdest and most out-there ideas get their start. Wired calls them high-risk, high-reward, because a lot of them won't ever pan out. But the ones that do have the potential to be game-changers. For example, while efforts to slightly boost a chemical rocket engine's efficiency would be laudable, that's not far out enough for the program. A proposal for a completely new system that could replace chemical rockets would fit right in. End quote. The NIAC program works in three parts. First, phase one, in which 14 applicants, mostly U.S.-based academic researchers, are chosen to receive $175,000 to conduct research and design prototypes for a year. A handful of them will make it to phase two, during which they'll receive $600,000 for two further years of research. And then... One lucky applicant will get $2 million for two more years of a Phase 3 study. But even if the projects don't make it all the way, they might get picked up by NASA or a commercial partner in some other capacity. For example, the Martian Helicopter Ingenuity was inspired by a NIAC proposal. Of the 14 Phase 1 winners this year, my personal favorite is the Self-Building Bricks on Mars. Or self-growing, at least. The turning into a brick part and then assembling those bricks into habitats would still need to be done by humans or robots, but the bricks themselves would be self-growing from fungi or bacteria. Quoting Wired, These fungi or bacteria start small, but they gradually grow filaments and tendrils to fill the space available to them. We call them self-healing materials, says mechanical and materials engineer Kangrui Jin, whose research group has used them to create biominerals and biopolymers that fill cracks in concrete. We want to take it one step further to develop self-growing materials. In a bioreactor on Mars, such materials would grow into sturdy bricks. The process would be costly on Earth, but since the red planet lacks concrete and construction workers, it could make more economic sense there. During her NIAC study, Jin plans to determine whether the growing process could be sped up from months to days, and how long the materials could survive in the harsh Martian environment. End quote. In a similar vein of how can we grow and build things from what's available to us there instead of having to waste valuable payload to bring our own construction materials, comes the idea of a lunar pipeline. Basically, once we get back to the moon and start staying up there for longer, astronauts are going to need months-long supplies of oxygen. 
Now, oxygen can be made on the moon, but it's likely that it won't be made close by any base camp or shelters. That's because the permanently shadowed craters where the water ice needed to make the oxygen is found are the coldest places on the moon, and it's tough to communicate from there. So what will most likely have to happen is hauling oxygen from the craters to base camp, like hauling water from a stream. But that's obviously going to be time-consuming. And on the moon, time is money. So Peter Carreri, former NASA scientist and co-founder of Lunar Resources who received the NIAC grant, has proposed a 5-kilometer pipeline on the moon. Quoting Wired, it would be built in segments by robots using metals like aluminum extracted from lunar regolith. The segments would be welded together and the pipe would run in a trench or on a stand, not so different from oil pipes on Earth. It would allow an oxygen flow rate of 2 kilograms per hour, enough for NASA's future astronauts' needs. Carreri and his colleagues are currently conducting a feasibility study, considering the potential costs, the best architecture for the pipe, and whether repairs could be completed by rovers." End quote. Another intriguing proposal that just got accepted for Phase 1 includes using the near gravity of space to shape fluids for mirrors and lenses for enormous space telescopes, mirrors like the one on JWST. But instead of having to figure out the complex origami of folding it up for launch, these would just require a frame and tank of fluid be launched and then the fluid gets squirted onto the frame. And quoting again, in space, droplets stick together because of the surface tension, and the pesky force of Earth's gravity doesn't get in the way and distort their shape. This will result in an incredibly smooth mirror, without the need for mechanical processes like grinding and polishing, which are used for traditional glass mirrors. It would then be attached to the telescope's other components through an automated process." End quote. Other NIAC projects include a new version of nuclear thermal propulsion to get spacecrafts to Mars even more quickly, sending a seaplane to Saturn's largest moon, Titan, another in-space manufacturing process using a technique called bend forming, and a heated probe to stab into another one of Saturn's moons, Enceladus. You can peruse all of the Phase 1 winners at the links in the show notes. But there is another NASA award that caught my eye last week, and this one isn't part of NIAC. It's much bigger. $425 million bigger. The award has gone to Boeing, who will work with NASA to develop more sustainable passenger airplanes. One of the prime focuses will be on their transonic truss-braced wing concept— from an artist rendering, the big visual difference on the exterior, as compared to the commercial passenger aircraft that we're accustomed to seeing, is that the wings come together on the top of the plane instead of sticking out of the sides. Link in the show notes to see what I'm talking about. And quoting NASA's press release, The transonic truss-braced wing concept involves an aircraft with extra-long, thin wings, stabilized by diagonal struts. This design results in an aircraft that is much more fuel-efficient than a traditional airliner due to a shape that would create less drag, resulting in its burning less fuel. 
NASA's goal is that the technology flown on the demonstrator aircraft, when combined with other advancements in propulsion systems, materials, and systems architecture, would result in fuel consumption and emissions reductions of up to 30% relative to today's most efficient single-aisle aircraft, depending on the mission, end quote. They plan to complete testing of the project by the end of the decade so that their developments can inform industry decisions heading into the 30s, with the optimistic goal that they could be incorporated into regular passenger air travel that decade and help the U.S. get to its goal of net-zero carbon emissions from aviation by 2050. As NASA Administrator Bill Nelson said, quote, "...since the beginning, NASA has been with you when you fly." NASA has dared to go farther, faster, higher, and in doing so, NASA has made aviation more sustainable and dependable. It's in our DNA. If we are successful, we may see these technologies in planes that the public takes to the skies in the 2030s." End quote. So I am currently reading a novel called Booth by Karen Joy Fowler, and it's about the family of President Lincoln assassinator John Wilkes Booth. Though that Booth is the most infamous family member to people today, in his own time, he was overshadowed by his father, Junius Booth, one of the most famous Shakespearean actors in the U.S., that whole history and the novel itself is fascinating, but I mention it because one interesting aspect of the novel is getting a sense of how 19th century Americans thought about Shakespeare. I'm always struck by instances of people in the past talking about something even further in the past. Like, I think sometimes I have this tendency to think of anything over a hundred years ago as a monolith, so I can forget that for someone in the 1700s, say, Michelangelo was already this ancient figure to them. Like, people that we consider our ancestors were also looking at this even older historical figure in a similar way to us. And so, too, Shakespeare might have seemed relatively just as distant to people in the 1800s United States as he does to us today. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that they thought about him and engaged with his texts in the same way we do today. For one thing, most productions of Shakespearean plays that you see today are in modern dress, or else setting the play in some place or time that is not Elizabethan England. The very first modern dress performance wasn't until the 1920s, so before that time, performances were still in that kind of Elizabethan mimicry. So that's one way that Shakespearean performances would have been quite different in the 19th century. These days, the plays are performed with all kinds of contemporary, period, and futuristic settings. A few have incorporated AR and VR in different ways, and now, apparently, there is even a production of Romeo and Juliet happening inside the video game Fallout. Quoting The Guardian, Fallout 76 is an online open world. Players travel wherever they wish and can bump into real-life strangers. With area chat enabled, they can even talk to each other through microphones, calling out to passersby on the dusty road. This opens up endless opportunities for user-generated serendipity, and the Wasteland Theater Company is one such experience, a delightfully unexpected thing for players to stumble upon in the devastation. 
The Wasteland Theater Company is not your average band of thespians. Dotted all across the world, they meet behind their keyboards to perform Inside Fallout 76, a video game set in a post-nuclear apocalyptic America. The Fallout series is one of gaming's most popular, famous for encouraging players to roleplay survivors within the oddly beautiful ruins of alternate history Earth. As you explore the crumbling husks of towns hollowed out by an atomic bomb, tumbleweed scuffs scorched sand, rusted signs advertising Nuka-Cola creak in the breeze, and you're constantly on the lookout for irradiated things that want to maul you. End quote. The director of the Wasteland Theatre Company, who goes by the name North, told The Guardian that their performances in Fallout harken back to the days of traveling theatre companies in the 16th and 17th centuries, or, if you want a fictional and thematic comparison to Fallout, the post-apocalyptic plot of the novel Station Eleven by Emily St. John Mandel. And that might have even been part of the inspiration, considering North referenced it directly when explaining how the desolate, post-apocalyptic landscape of the Fallout universe lends itself well to Shakespeare. That, and apparently the game itself already had a good number of Shakespearean references built into the game, like an old sign in an abandoned school advertising auditions for Midsummer, and a character who shouts Shakespearean passages at super mutants like they were Bible quotes. So perhaps the leap to performing Shakespeare within the Fallout universe wasn't that great, but to pull it off takes legitimate effort and a large team. There's a cast and crew, hundreds of pages of adapted scripts, and months of rehearsals. Costumes, props, sets, and the stages themselves are scoured from objects across Fallout's wasteland, and they realized pretty quickly that they have to bring on security for the shows, because, you know, this is still an open-world game with people and creatures wreaking destruction left and right. Quoting The Guardian, Occasionally, someone threatens to blow the stage up with a rocket launcher mid-performance, but most times they end up watching half of Midsummer instead. End quote. And yes, Midsummer. It's not just Romeo and Juliet's. They've put on a number of different plays, as well as a sonnet festival, and are currently working on an adaptation of Alice in Wonderland. And I really love this as an example of how adaptable Shakespeare, and really theater writ large, truly is. You know, unfortunately, art can often be inaccessible to some people, and this is one of the better examples recently of reaching people where they're at and allowing them to be a part of things. Quoting again, In 2022, Fallout 76 claimed to have over 13.5 million players, some of whom, North believes, may never have seen a Shakespeare play. 99% of those who find us sit down and quietly watch the show. It's really quite moving, performing for people who might not go to the theater in their own communities or haven't thought about Shakespeare since high school. We're tickled silly knowing that we are potentially reaching new, untapped audiences and introducing or reintroducing Shakespeare to so many. I hope Shakespeare academics who study comparative drama will take note of our use of this new medium to reach new audiences. I know some high school English teachers have used us as an example for their students of how Shakespeare can be and should be performed in new spaces. What we're doing is really new and expands the potential of using video games as digital performance spaces. It reminds us that Shakespeare constantly finds new places to be performed and loved. 
There are Shakespeare troops who help folks in the criminal justice system explore the arts, Shakespeare audio podcasts, and we're here bringing Shakespeare into the huge world of gaming, end quote. Getting people who were not previously into Shakespeare or the performing arts into it via gaming is very cool. On the flip side, I don't really understand video games, but maybe I'll check this one out, if only just to see a performance. Maybe I'll realize what I've been missing. Although, when I say I don't really understand video games, I mean I don't even know how to acquire one. The last time I played a computer game, I bought it in one of those big CD-ROM boxes. Is there a No Fear Shakespeare equivalent for video games? Because that is definitely what I need. Well, I thought I'd round out the week with news of a collaboration that will either mean next to nothing to you or completely rock your world. Channing Tatum, in a big Vanity Fair profile ahead of the highly anticipated finale to the Magic Mike franchise, revealed that he's currently co-writing a romance novel with best-selling author Roxanne Gay. That gay was collaborating with her well-documented longtime celebrity crush apparently was not news. She mentioned it on The Advocates podcast back in 2019. But the news broke a very particular corner of the internet all over again when Tatum earlier this month revealed that the object of their collaboration is in fact a romance novel. So, looks like I'm into romance novels now. But that is it from me for this week. This show was produced by Ride Home Media. I'm Jackson Bird, and I'll talk to you again on Monday.